KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, April 12th, a historic back-to-school day today. More on that next, just after the headlines. Grab ball to shortstop. Kim will go to first. The San Diego Padres get their first no-hitter in the history of the franchise. The first no-hitter in Padres history was delivered this weekend by Padres pitcher native San Diegan Jomas Grove. He did it in an away game on Friday against the Texas Rangers. The Padres won the game 3-0. SeaWorld San Diego will fully reopen today at a limited capacity with rides, attractions, and roller coasters, according to park officials. Miro Kopik is the founder of Bottom Line Marketing and a business commentator for KPBS. As San Diego enters into the orange tier, what's great is that now SeaWorld actually, for these um, for the park, can have 25% capacity. And in fact, their animal exhibits uh, can have 50% capacity. For now, you'll still have to make a reservation online to visit the park. The United States Supreme Court has once again sided with those fighting California's COVID-19 restrictions on religion. On Friday, the court barred the state from enforcing a rule that limited religious gatherings in homes to no more than three households. The state was already in the process of modifying its rules in preparation for the planned easing of COVID-19 restrictions. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Today marks a historic back-to-school day for many San Diego County children. For over a year, tens of thousands of kids here have been learning through a computer screen and getting to know their teachers and classmates virtually. To get a glimpse of what teaching students online has been like, we asked a Rancho Bernardo high school teacher to record an audio diary for a week. Here's social science teacher Tristan McCoy. So I'm sitting here about five minutes before class is going to start and... Normally on a typical day, the campus would just be brimming over with energy and you could hear the voices of kids going through the hall, talking, teachers standing outside their door, high-fiving kids, talking to them, welcoming them as they come into class. There's just an energy on campus that, you know, if you've, if you've never taught, uh, it's indescribable. And once all those kids filter into your class, some excited, some not wanting to be there, but those are the ones you pour a little bit more energy and effort and love into. And, and once that door closes, there's, there's just something magic that happens between the teacher and the, and the kids in that class. And you're, you're a family for that hour and a half, you know, and you have fun and you push each other and it's an ongoing, just living thing. And you know, I'm sitting here now a couple minutes before class and it's just, it's a graveyard. Nobody's walking in the halls, no kids to high five, no energy in class. 
you know, when Zoom, when that Zoom camera turns on, you know, I'm going to try to bring the energy, but it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard talking to, you know, a screen and, um, seeing one inch faces and sometimes not even that because they're not in the camera or I'm sharing my screen. So you can't even see their faces. It's just, it's a very, very sad environment and void of void of the, the usual energy. So we do what we can and, uh, you know, put on a happy face and see if we can, we can energize these kids somehow. big part of class in normal times is building a classroom culture community and really getting these kids connected and learning from each other and developing some relationships and trust because we do so much group work that culture really needs to be established in in a virtual world it is really hard to build any of that so i know a lot of teachers like me spend some time putting kids in breakout rooms and and giving them some guided questions for them to get connected and getting to know each other and uh, learning how to build those relationships. But, you know, when you're sitting on Zoom and some kids' cameras are off and are not responding and you can tell that when you're looking at them in the camera, they're playing video games or not engaged or you jump into the breakout rooms and, you know, two kids are talking and the others have their cameras off and it's a challenge it's a challenge really hard to do something that I look forward to I know many other teachers look forward to in the classroom is really getting to know these kids and having helping them get to know each other but it's just a it's just a challenge in this virtual world thing on my list of things to do today is to reach out to some parents whose children have not been engaged in class at all up to this point. Our quarter started about a week and a half, two weeks ago, and I have about five students in every class who have not attended a Zoom meeting, which we have uh, four days a week, or have completed any assignments. So I have emailed parents up to this point. But I've not given phone calls yet, so that's something I'll be doing today. And I think that is probably one of the more challenging things about this new virtual learning environment is what to do with these kids who aren't who aren't engaged in class. Uh, typically, you have these kids in class with you, and through face to face interactions, you get to talk to them one-on-one, build some relationships, show them that you care, you know, work with them, nag them, (laughs) give them multiple opportunities to, to get on board. And because you see them every day, those connections, those relationships really do start to move them in a, in the right direction. But in this situation, these kids are, they're pretty much anonymous to us and we're anonymous to them. Um, we have no relationship with them, no connection, no face-to-face opportunities to really reach them and, and try to influence them and, and get them moving in the right direction. So that's been the hardest. I will call their parents today, but their emails have gone or my emails to them have not been responded to. So my, my hope is that maybe a phone call will work, but 
Uh, in my experience, usually if the kids don't engage, the parents don't return emails. They usually don't respond to phone calls either. But you never know. It's worth a shot. So I am on my way to get my first round of the COVID vaccine. And I am really excited about the vaccination, not just for me, but that means that more and more educators are going to be getting the vaccination and more and more of the vulnerable population is going to be getting the vaccination. And that means we can get back to business and reopen our schools and get these kids on campus where they belong. It's been a long time coming. And, um, you know, I know most of the teachers that I know all the teachers that I know are excited to get the, the kids back in their classrooms and start working with them and seeing their faces and engaging with them and, and teaching what we love to do. That was Rancho Bernardo High School teacher Tristan McCoy. McCoy is now fully vaccinated. He's back in the classroom, but he says only about 20 percent of students have currently opted to go back to campus. So he's continuing to teach virtually as well. Join KPBS Midday Edition today for a special program marking the first back to in-person instruction for many San Diego students. Or if you miss it live on the radio, you can always catch it on the KPBS Midday Edition podcast on your favorite podcast app. Nearly 25% of San Diegans 16 and older have now been vaccinated against COVID-19. KPBS's Jacob Baer looks at what's to come for vaccine supply in the region as eligibility is set to expand on Thursday. As of Friday morning, San Diego County had administered at least the first dose of COVID-19 vaccine to just over 40% of the eligible population, and the county is just shy of having a quarter of residents fully immunized. But one of the big issues at the moment is the gap between supply and demand, according to Sharp Healthcare COO Brett McLean. It looks like this week's going to be a little bit lower, unfortunately, for a couple reasons, but then actually will probably go up in the next uh, few weeks. McLean said that vaccine allocation should pick up beginning the week of April 22nd. In the meantime, COVID-19 vaccine eligibility will expand to anyone 16 years or older starting April 15th. And that was KPBS's Jacob Bear. San Diego City Council meetings are likely to be back to in-person in the coming months as pandemic restrictions ease. But there's one aspect of virtual council meetings that many want to keep virtual. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen has more. Before the pandemic, providing public comment at a council meeting could take the better part of a day. You had to find the 12th floor of City Hall, fill out a speaker slip, and wait, sometimes hours, for your turn to speak. Since meetings have gone virtual, that waiting can be done from anywhere with a phone or internet connection. Councilmember Sean Elo Rivera says remote public comment has made it easier for youth, parents, working people, and those with mobility challenges to engage with their local government. And that's worth keeping. We often use the phrase of breaking down the walls of City Hall to make government more accessible to the community. And when we say that, we mean making it accessible so that someone feels like they can just show up and be a part of the decisions 
that are being made that will impact them. Former council member and open government advocate Donna Fry agrees remote public comment should stay. But she's also looking forward to the time when people can be in the same room as their elected officials again. There is value in being able to provide testimony in person and see what the city council members are doing the whole time at the meeting, because you can't really see that on the Zoom. Council President Jen Campbell told KPBS she's interested in exploring options for remote testimony post-pandemic. And that was KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Some may consider California to be a tech mecca, but the pandemic has exposed long-term weaknesses in the state's technological infrastructure. The California Report's Mary Franklin Harvin has more on a new bill aimed at fixing things. We all know the greatest hits or the greatest failures of state IT projects. DMV, Fiscal, and most recently, EDD. San Francisco Assemblymember David Chu has seen the costs of California's outdated tech systems. At the state's Employment Development Department, for example, applicants have had to navigate sluggish and confusing screening services that the agency is outsourcing to bolster its own decades-old tech. But with a new bill this week, Assemblymember Chu is hoping to streamline the complicated web of systems behind California's state websites. 27 licensing systems across 23 departments, 23 claim management systems across 7 departments, 20 content management systems across 10 departments. It's almost Dilbert-esque what is happening. The bill would give the California Department of Technology the authority to prioritize which legacy systems should be updated first, and it requires CDT to create a consolidation plan. Chu says he hopes the legislation will simplify the online experience for Californians who use the systems. For The California Report, I'm Mary Franklin Harvin. Coming up, drones were approved for use all over Chula Vista earlier this year, but the buzzing drone program has raised questions and concerns. We'll have more on that next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. There's a buzz in and around Chula Vista. In the sky, it's the whirring of drones doubling as first responders by the local police department. And in headlines, the buzz is PR-driven. Chula Vista is leaning into its newfound role as a pioneer when it comes to the use of drone technology, warts and all. Sofia Mejias Pasco took a deep dive into the drone program and the questions it raised for Voice of San Diego. Sofia spoke with KPBS's Claire Tregesser on the roundtable. Here's that interview. So I know KPBS and others covered the Chula Vista drone program when it launched, but didn't dig too deeply into it. So tell us, what are the drones being used for currently? 
Yeah. So right now, Trula Vista mainly uses drones in a program they call Drone is First Responder. Uh, how it works, essentially, there are four launch sites throughout the city of Chula Vista um, where drone pilots wait for the call to launch the drone to respond to a dispatch call. Uh, and that could include building fires, traffic collisions, uh, reports of crimes in progress, and the drones give officers in the police station an aerial view of what's happening moment to moment uh, at the scene, and that information is then relayed to officers responding to the scene on the ground. Uh, some officers also carry drones in the trunks of their uh, patrol vehicles and use them in high-level emergencies where they have expanded use of the drones. They can fly them out of sight behind buildings and even indoors. And so how do you think it's going so far? Does the department find them useful or is it still just a bit of an experiment? Yeah, the department is really proud of this program. They say it's been extremely successful in uh, reducing response times to calls and also making policing safer in Chula Vista for residents and for officers because they're placing a drone in situations where an officer would normally have to respond. But the program is still relatively new. It's only a few years ago that they started launching drones as first responders. And it certainly hasn't been without criticism from the community or uh, digital privacy groups. You wrote about the public relations strategy behind the drone rollout. So why does the city want to be known for drones? Is this just a way to boost Chula Vista's brand? Well, you know, Chula Vista has a reputation for being sort of a bedroom community, which means that it's a suburb where people live, where they sleep at night, but they really go other places to work and to do business. And this sort of creates a perception problem for the city who really wants to be seen as a bigger player in the Southern California region. So drones offer an opportunity for the city to appear forward-looking and technologically advanced and, and for them to be seen as more of an innovative uh, player in the field to attract other other businesses. And we've seen the same kind of thing, uh, the same kind of effort to stand out from San Diego's shadow in previous years, like when Chula Vista wanted to be uh, the home of Amazon's new headquarters or when they threw their name in the ring to become the new location for the CSU campus. Yeah, I was going to say, I remember their push to become the Amazon headquarters, which ultimately wasn't successful. Um, so now it seems like, I guess, they're, they're trying to make a name for themselves with drones. And police departments in cities around the world seem to be taking some notice. They're considering Chula Vista maybe an expert, a subject matter expert on drones. Uh, so how has that led to what you describe as a revolving door between the police department and the drone industry? Yeah. So, so as uh, Chula Vista becomes known as sort of a national standard in uh, drone integration and policing, law enforcement agencies and the companies that want to sell them drones have been looking at Chula Vista and actually touring the drone program at their station. Uh, and, and this has opened the door for drone companies with a huge interest in creating and selling drones to law enforcement to uh, build connections with the officers currently leading the drone program. Uh, and my reporting at Voice of San Diego has revealed that members of the Chula Vista Police Department who helped launch the drone program initially have since retired and are now working at some of those drone companies, which still have really close ties with Chula Vista Police Department. And so when the drone program was first launched, what did the police department say to the community and elected officials about it? Did they get their buy-in on using drones? 
So yeah, this is something that I asked the police department. They said, yes, they did get buy-in from the community that they held listening sessions. They created opportunities for people to give feedback on the drone policies that they proposed. And they also said that they vetted these policies with the ACLU, but the outreach apparently didn't reach the entire community of Chula Vista because like one resident I talked to, for example, she didn't even know about the department's drone program until she saw one flying over her yard one day. And so the department often points to their privacy policy in response to community concern about police surveillance, but this policy is really just a few sentences saying that drones won't be used by pilots for surveillance in areas where people should have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And I can imagine that would be maybe alarming to be out in your yard and see a drone flying overhead and find out that it's from the police department if you didn't know that that was going on. So what do community members say about the drones now? Yeah, I think community members and privacy advocates still have concerns. Uh, Don Redmond, the captain at the Chula Vista Police Department, though, he, he now runs the drone program and he said he's only heard from a handful of residents who have had concerns and that once he explained to them why the drone uh, might be flying over someone's yard because uh, the flight path for a call might have taken the drone there, that usually concerns were abated. But uh, people like Norelle Martinez, who's lived in Chula Vista her entire life, she just still thinks that drones are an inappropriate step into her privacy and into her life in Chula Vista. And it seems like race is also a factor in this story, especially because uh, Chula Vista is so close to the border. So what do critics say about who is likely to be watched from the skies? So for Chula Vista, it really depends on where the drones are going to be launching from. When this program started out, drones were launched uh, within a mile radius around the Chula Vista Police Department, which is on the west side of the city, which is uh, more dense, more diverse, and lower income. Now the program has been expanded uh, throughout the entire city of Chula Vista, but drones capture video along their entire flight path. So if you live closer to one of the four launch sites throughout the city, or if you live in an area that receives more police calls, then you might be subject to more surveillance because you might be more likely to be in the flight path of police drones. Is there anything you learned while reporting this story that really surprised you, either with the drone technology itself or how the city of Chula Vista is using it to elevate its profile? You know, I think the range of uh, calls that the drones are used for is really surprising. I mean, they've responded to everything from, you know, drug crimes to corralling chickens that had escaped from a local elementary school. So they're really quickly becoming a part of the police force in Chula Vista, not just in a small way for or, or for emergencies, but like a very normal part of day to day operations. And these drones are now launched 20 times a day. So I think that was what was most surprising is that it's already a really big part of policing in, in Chula Vista. That was Sofia mejias Pasco speaking with KPBS's Claire Tregesser on The Roundtable. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.